Welcome to Plodcast, uh, episode 39. Great to have you with me. It's, um, it's a privilege to join you. Thanks for tagging along. So I want to uh, talk this uh, episode about private property and the environment. Um, so if, if you look at any kind of environmental injunction, like uh, let's do something about climate change or save Lake Tahoe or the different uh, ethical imperatives that confront you from different bumper stickers, let's save the Chesapeake Bay or save this river or um, save this wildlife uh, refuge, when you are exhorting people to save this or save that or preserve this or preserve that, you're, there's something you're pre, there's something that's uh, being presupposed in the background, and what is being presupposed in the background is ownership. So, uh, when when someone stands up at a meeting and says, "We all need to band together and save." Um, you know the lake outside of town. The, the and if if um, some people say yeah let's save the lake and other people say no let's not save the lake and there's a debate about saving the lake. The w- one group says if we don't act now it's going to be too late and the other group is arguing that it's not in danger we don't need to do anything. Uh, very few people will argue on the basis of ownership. In, in the debate show that, that rages over saving this lake or saving this river, both sides usually presuppose ownership. So everybody agrees that if the lake were in danger, we have the authority in this meeting to make a decision about it. And that is the presupposition of ownership. Well, here's the problem with that. If you have, it's the problem of the commons. If everybody's responsible for something, then nobody's responsible for it. Or another way of putting it is um, set three kids down at a table, put one milkshake in front of them, and give them three straws. Now, you've got three straws, one milkshake. What is the, what is the built-in incentive? Well, the built-in incentive is for each child to stake as much claim of ownership as they can by getting as much milkshake through their straw as, as they can. If someone says, uh, here's your milkshake, here's yours, here's yours, then each child has to husband their milkshake. You know, one kid's going to want to drink it all. One, one kid wants to nurse it over time and enjoy it over a long period of time. There would, there would be different approaches. But those different personalities, those kids with different personalities, if you put them all on the same milkshake, they're going to acquire a very similar personality because you've incentivized them to do that. So, what this means is that in order to protect the environment really we have to get owner we have to get the question of ownership straight who owns what so take a very simple example save the whales okay now i take it for granted that christians should want to save the whales christians should want to should not want the world uh, 200 years hence to have no whales in it. Saving the whales is part of the cultural mandate that God 
gave us. We're supposed to be good stewards of the earth. We're supposed to multiply. We're supposed to replenish the earth. And this means taking care of it. Um, the, the cultural mandate that is given to us in Genesis, uh, well, it's given, uh, uh, it's given to us in Genesis, and then it's given again after the flood, uh, so uh, twice in Genesis, means that it's not the case that the cultural mandate applied before there was sin, but then after there was sin, all bets are off. No, because after the, this horrendous judgment for sin uh, in Noah's flood, right after that, God gave, uh, God reiterates the cultural mandate. So we should want to be good stewards of the planet. Conservative, Bible-believing Christians should want to be good stewards of the planet. However, comma, we need to do it through God's appointed mechanisms. And the central mechanism for preserving the environment is this thing called property. Property. Ownership. Who owns it? So coming back, um, com coming back to the uh, whales, who owns the whales? Whose problem is it? Whose responsibility is it? Now, if you say, um, if you've got, you know, three great maritime powers and, and they have a whaling, and each, each one of them has a whaling industry, you've got your three kids in the milkshake problem all over again. If the kids are to drink the milkshake responsibly, we have to determine who owns the milkshake, who bought the milkshake, who's responsible for this. And when you try to do everything based on state ownership or, worse yet, on the basis of international, uh, international agreements and treaties, uh, what you have is property management without property feedback, uh, which is why... Uh, um, forests that are managed uh, by private industry, uh, where an, uh, a logging company, let's say, owns a forest and is trying to harvest trees over time, they are, they are incentivized to maximize the number of trees growing, and they are incentivized to replenish. But when you have the Bureau of Land Management uh, uh, leasing land for uh, ranchers to um, graze their cattle, things like that, or uh, loggers are being allowed to cut trees on government land, what you have is the owner, the state, doesn't have an adequate pricing mechanism to figure out uh, when we've gone into bad territory, when we've gone into negative territory. A man who is, a man who's living on a farm uh, and is managing as a, who's managing a farm is going to have to reconcile his books. He's going to have to sit down and do his books periodically, and the books have to balance. It, it, all, has to, it all has to come out even. But if you are making decisions inside a federal bureaucracy, that's not the case. It doesn't, it doesn't happen that way, which means that, that you cannot be good stewards. So, if, um, if I say to a man with a 100-acre farm, uh, can you be a good steward of this land, and can you know that you're being a good steward of this land? Um, and yes, the, the answer is yes, because it's possible for him to plant, 
uh, plow, plant, weed, um, make his living, and he can tell as he goes how he's doing. But if there is no um, skin in the game, if there are no consequences for bureaucrats who make a bad decision, then there's no reason for the bad decisions to cease being made. And so consequently, you don't want to, I would argue that you don't want to put anybody in charge of the environment or to put anybody in charge of a portion of the environment or to put anybody in charge of an endangered species or to put anybody in charge of an unendangered species when that person does not face any negative consequences for making poor decisions. That's not called stewardship. That, that, that's not called good stewardship. That's called the opposite. That's bad stewardship. That's the wrong kind of thing. So in order, in order to protect the environment long term, we have to figure out a way of radically reintroducing private property, radically reintroducing private property and responsibility and consequences for mismanagement. So our book review, I want to I want to commend to you a small book uh, by B.B. Warfield called The Plan of Salvation. Uh, it's a very helpful breakdown of different approaches to salvation. He's got a, uh, a famous uh, graph uh, uh, that's presented in there where the plans of salvation can be divided into natural and supernatural. Um, and so on the supernatural side of things, there would be the uh, priestly or sacerdotal approaches um, or the evangelical approaches. So the Roman Catholic and the evangelical Protestant are both supernaturalists. They believe in um, they believe in God, they believe in grace, they believe in the atonement, and they believe in the application of the atonement to man. But um, the and they're both so they're both supernaturalists in that sense. But one of them believes that this grace is mediated to us uh, through the mechanism or the instruments of the church, the sacraments of the church, for example. Uh, the thing that distinguishes um, the evangelical is the belief that that God acts on the heart of the unregenerate individual immediately. Now, this is not to say, this is, it's, it's important to acknowledge that Warfield is not denying that there are instruments and means and, and tools and things in the world that God uses. God uses the tract left in the laundromat. God uses a godly upbringing. God uses the preaching of the word. God uses the sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. God uses all these things. But when God gives the increase, when when someone who's um, grown up in a particular church and they've listened to the gospel being preached multiple times, they've heard the gospel over and over and over, and then one night they hear it. One night there is something happens. What is that thing that happens? Um, in Second Corinthians 4, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul compares it to the moment of creation. And that is, well, it's not uh, just compared to the moment of creation. It is in a very real 
sense, it is a moment of creation. So God uh, looks at this person who's dead in his trespasses and sins, and God speaks the quickening word. Now, it, it, compare it to uh, the creation of Adam. Um, God made, shaped Adam. God made Adam out of the dust of the ground. So Adam was formed using materials that were ready to hand, ready at hand. Um, so Adam was lying there, a lifelike statue, uh, and then it says God breathed the breath of life into him. So the moment of immediate transformation, conversion, regeneration, is like that moment when God breathed the breath of life uh, into Adam. There were pre-existent materials. So the, the person who's dead in his transgressions and sins is a person. He's there. He's walking around. Uh, so Paul says that we were uh, this, this death and transgressions and sins that we had, it was the it was the status, this death was the status in which we used to live. We used to live in death. So we are pre-existent material. But God comes to us and immediately, creatively, um, brings a spark of life into existence that wasn't there before. Um, if, you, if you are interested in preserving or maintaining uh, or perhaps returning to historic evangelicalism, Historic Reformed Evangelicalism. Uh, this book, The Plan of Salvation by B.B. War B. Warfield, would be a good place to start. Here we are with our Hamartiology segment, episode 39 of the podcast. Again, it's good to have you with me. Uh, good to have you with me here. So the next uh, word that I want to consider is a mouthful. Allotree Episcopos. Allotree Episcopos. It refers to someone who is a busybody in the affairs of others. In the latter half of the word, Episcopos, we can see the word that is rendered elsewhere as overseer or bishop. So this busybody, this renegade bishop, is engaged in looking over the shoulders of others so that he can butt in. So um, the, the bishop of the bishop of his neighbor. Right? The, the, this is a Budinsky. The word is used once by Peter when he says, uh, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. That's 1 Peter 4, 15. Now look at that list, which is quite interesting. Let no man who is called a Christian be punished as a murderer, thief, evildoer, or Budinsky. Hmm. This is a, there's a great biblical principle here. Uh, Paul goes over it a number of times in his writings, but the biblical principle is this: mind thine own business, mind thine own beeswax. Uh, the Bible says that um, there is a place where it ceases to be concerned for your neighbor, and it becomes something that is totally and completely out of line. So. <clears throat> In Galatians 6, Paul says that each person should bear his own burden, but he also says that we should bear one another's burdens. There's a, obviously, there's a time when you help, help a guy push his car out of the intersection, right? Um, nobody, nobody's going to say when you, when you pull your car off to the side of the road and, and run out to help the guy get out of the jam he's in, he's not going to turn to you and say, hey, don't, don't I know you from church and 
Doesn't 1 Peter 4.15 tell you not to butt into other people's affairs? Everybody knows, everybody sees that that's not, um, that's not this officious meddling. When the Good Samaritan um, takes care of the guy who's beat up by the side of the road, that's not meddling. That's, um, that's a helping hand. That's lending a guy a hand. But there's a line, and you can cross it. There's a line that we need to be careful that we're not uh, full to the brim and overflowing with prayer requests or with gossip disguised as prayer requests or with um, uh, officious meddling disguised as love for your brother. That's just not the way it goes. God in the time of the sickness, God in the You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.